Welcome. Come on in. Pull up a stool. And let me pour you a drink. And let's talk a little noir at the bar. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of Noir at the Bar, where you get to hear some of your favorite authors reading from their books and short stories. Now, this season, our guest readers are authors that are going to be attending the Left Coast Crime in Seattle, April 11th to 14th. So not only do you get to hear them on the show here, you can go visit them, meet them, and maybe get a book signed. All right, our first reader today is a co-host of the House of Mystery, and uh, he's got a lot of books and a lot of people know him. So uh, Mr. John Copenhaver, and he's reading from Hall of Mirrors. So thank you for being here, John. Thank you, Al. I am looking forward to it. So this doesn't really require much setup since it's the first chapter of Hall of Mirrors. So I'm going to jump right in. It's May 1st, 1954, and the perspective I'm reading from is Lionel. I'm aware of the clear dust sky beyond the smoke. I'm aware of cherry blossoms hanging in the breeze weeks past their peak. I'm aware of our building Spanish colonial revival facade, its tiers and modeled ledges and balconies sweeping upward, its demonic grotesque perched on the cornice looming in vain, having failed to ward off evil spirits. Firefighters rush past me, wearing wide-brimmed helmets, gas masks with trunk-like noses, bulky coats marred with the residue of past fires, and tall boots like fishermen's waders. They grip fire extinguishers and haul limp extra hoses over their shoulders. The polished nozzles glint in the light from the building's lobby entrance. They call out commands and move with extraordinary purpose, giving some order to the chaos. A hook and ladder truck, its wheel up over the curb and crushing a fledgling redbud tree, buzzes with commotion. The long, expandable ladder shifts and begins to angle up. The clean, faced firefighter at its helm is so intent on the job that he briefly and bizarrely charms me. Not far behind me, distraught neighbors and nosy, babbling pedestrians gather, parting the sea, the ambulance crew appear, searching for direction. When I first visited the building, Roger stopped near the spot on the sidewalk, slid his hand across my shoulder, a gesture both thrilling and unsettling in a public space and pointed to the windows along the night floor. We'll live up there forever, darling, he said, leaning in, his voice soft, conspiratorial. We'll throw parties. We'll sit martinis and watch D.C. blink to life in the evenings, just you and me. I cracked those windows at his request this morning to let in the mellow spring air. Now a ribbon of black smoke seeps from those raised sashes, and I'm sure I spot a flame flicker behind the glass. A line of poetry surfaces his eyes darkened by too great a light. It's from Ovid, I think, a god riding a chariot too close to the sun, blinded by its rays. Perhaps that's it. Roger and I have flown too close and got burned, are burning. Philippa is standing beside me, her hand gently touching the back of my arm, an awkward but tender attempt to console me. Judy, not the consoling type, stands a few feet from me, her arms crossed, her chin up, her dark eyes like twin camera lenses recording it all. Maybe Judy or Philippa mentioned Ovid. They tend to go on about cultural tidbits. Gloria Graham is just glorious in the big heat. Or hand over Kinsey's new book. I can't wait to read what he has to say about women. 
Or maybe the poet's words echo from my grade school days, something I was made to memorize but forgot, something buried deep, dislodged as I watched my life turn to ash. I should be screaming. I should be crying. Maybe it's shock. How did this happen? Was it my fault? Did I forget to turn off the stove? Did Roger fail to unplug the toaster? He can be so forgetful. What about the bathroom heater? The towels dangle too close to it. I've noted it before. Maybe it wasn't our fault, but carelessness from another of the building's residents. A janitor ashing his cigarette in the oily bucket, or a housewife neglecting her curling iron. Or maybe it's a defect of the fuse box, old mouse-eaten wiring, or spark from colliding elevator cables. It's a chilly evening, but I'm sweating, drenched. Roger isn't inside, of course. Sure, he said he would be home this afternoon, but he would have stopped the fire if he were inside. He would have used his strong runner's legs, dashed into the hall, yanked the extinguisher from the wall, and choked the flames with sodium bicarbonate. His naval training during the war and his ability to stay cool under pressure would have served him well. No, he's not there. There's no way. Maybe he's out securing work. We need him to find a new job. A damn good job. Or maybe he ran to the store for dinner fixings. Just in case, as a cosmic barter, I lean into the horror. Take my things, I say to God, to the universe, but just don't take Roger. In my mind, I fly up nine stories and turn back time an hour. I'm standing in the middle of the room recreated by knocking down the non-load-bearing wall between the dining and main living areas. It's spacious, contemporary, and furnished with low-slung Herman Miller pieces and rosewood, upholstered in fabrics with bold geometric patterns. Against the back wall, my gift to Roger last Christmas... A record player cabinet filled with Sinatra, Miller, Cole, Gillespie, Davis, and Peggy Lee. And beside it, a brass bar cart stocked with gin martini glasses with delicate stems and a big glass shaker that weighs a ton. We papered the far wall in a bold poppy print, modern and a tad garish. Absolutely a statement. It's there amid the poppies that I imagine the first flame emerging. As if the bright red-orange petals, inspired by their color, transmute into fire. The thick paper bubbles and hisses and begins to peel off. Strips float to the floor, igniting the thin layer of linseed oil polish and sending a ripple of bluish fire across the wood. The glass on the starburst clock, now circled with flame, cracks and pops out. The hand stops, 724. In the blast of heat, the upright piano makes a strange sound, like ghostly fingers swiping its strings. The photos Roger displayed on its top waver and topple over. They are black and whites of his dead grandparents, his mild mother, Hard Bishop's father, his grim aunt and uncle, and his myopic sister, Rose Ellen, and him looking handsome in his lieutenant's uniform, and the two of us on a hike in Shenandoah National Park, pressing close, laughing, soon to be tugging at each other's clothes behind a boulder giggling like damn idiots, aroused and happy, so happy. When the photo of us crashes into the floor, my heart lurches. Having gathered immense and uncontrollable energy, my imaginary blaze suddenly roars at me, bringing me back. Roger and I are good at imagining the worst. It's an occupational hazard. I remember a scene in our third Ray Kane novel, Seeing Red. McKee paused at the door, heat radiating out, Inky smoke blooming from its keyhole, its doorknob a branding iron. 
What was inside was more than some maniac arson's delight, but demonic force, sentient and vicious, poised to consume. Had Roger written that passage, or had I? I couldn't remember. Then I smell it, the actual fire. It's a greasy odor, like an old furnace, and then something sulfurous and nauseating, the scent of death, burning hair. How could I smell it so far away? Am I inventing it? Oh, God. The wall of numbness cracks and pain floods in. It's a sharp physical pain that knocks the breath out of me. My knees wobble and I lean into Philippa, who, at a svelte 22, is 50 pounds lighter than me. She catches me, her grip assured as if she were bracing for this. My collapse and steadies me. She steps close, gazing at me, her eyes concerned and quiet, even a little cold. As the tremor dissipates, tears well up, and I sob. Somehow, I know that Roger is dead. Fantastic. You know, when you when you read um, from your story out loud like that, um, do you get a different perspective? Yeah, you know, it's interesting um, because you do, you are sort of speaking through a character's pers- actual sort of language, and it's not necessarily your own. I mean, of course, you wrote it, but it's, you know, you're living in a different perspective. So it's kind of weird, almost actually, I guess, like I'm being an actor, <laughs> um, although I'm not an actor <laughs> at all. Well, fantastic. Well, Al, at my end of the bar, enjoying a refreshing beverage, we have uh, Tracy Clark, who will be reading from Fall. Yeah, I will be reading from Fall, my latest book, and I'll start at the beginning of Chapter 1. Detective Harriet Foster stared at her son's killer. She told herself that she needed to see if he'd changed in the four years since she'd seen him last, but that wasn't it. The test was for herself. Could she look at him and despise him less? Could she be in the same room again with Terrell Willem and not feel rage and contempt and an ungodly impulse to forfeit everything she was to end him? Willem was here for a resentencing hearing. She was here to give another impact statement. Willem couldn't have appeared more disinterested as he sat sullenly in his tan prison two-piece, his paunchy body, fueled by cheap prison carbs, squeezed into the county-issued uniform, his washed-out v-neck top revealing a dingy white t-shirt underneath. Foster stood at the front of courtroom 211 at the Cook County Courthouse, her hands resting on the lectern, but Willem wouldn't look at her. Slumped at the hearing table, dull eyes focused on his feet. He was here in body only. His lawyer, a young public defender, outwardly nervous, sat beside him, fiddling with papers. Her bright green eyes, pixie-cut, and rosy cheeks strangely jarring in a place like this. Willem, now 22, had spent the last five years in prison for murdering her son, Reg. But the look on the young man's dark face, the sneer, the vacantness of expression, told her that five years could have been fifty for all the difference they had made. No change. Terrell Willem was the same. Prison, free, here, there. He would always be this, and only this. She might have been able to bring herself to lament the loss of his potential, were it not for the fact that this waste had cost her the life of her 14-year-old son, her only child. But she was angry at more than Willem. Willem didn't amount to nothing on his own. Cognitively disadvantaged, he'd been failed by a lumbering, inefficient school system and by a mother who bore him at age 15 and hadn't a clue how to parent. Willem could barely read, had never held a job. He robbed and sold drugs and whatever else he needed to do to feed himself. His arms and neck were covered in violent tattoos that glorified death and killing and the gang to which he sold his soul. Detached from civility, devoid of remorse, Willem 
with a hard and nasty chaos machine with no conscience. Harry memorized his arrest record. She had learned all she could about Willem. She knew him by the sour twist of his thick, dry lips, saw him in the false bravado that had him leaning back in his chair, his long legs spread wide under the table, as though nothing worried him, as if he had no stake in what was being said or by whom. He was a child in a man's body, a child who hadn't been taught, who'd been allowed to grow as a destructive weed might, and live like a feral dog that lurched undeterred from impulse to impulse. Willem had wanted Reg's bike, so he took it, but that hadn't been enough. He had to take Reg, too. Wasn't no big thing. People die all the time, dog. So what? Gave me the bike, but he was too slow giving up them good shoes, though. It's what he had said at trial. Then he chuckled, revealing two gold teeth. Foster still heard that chuckle in her nightmares. There'd been sneers at the trial, too, and eye rolls. More blank looks. At what point during the proceedings, Willem had appeared to fall asleep and had to be nudged awake by his, as his lawyer. A bike or life, shoes or wallet. All the same to him. Harry stood with her back straight, her eyes on the killer at the table. She'd worn a black suit, her badge clipped to the belt at her waist, but hidden. Her gun, too. Both were tools of her trade, tools that defined her, marked her, steadied her hand, resentencing. That's what they were here for. Because Willem had been just seventeen at the time of her son's murder, a lawyer, not pixie cut, had successfully argued that he deserved a break on his sentence of ninety-nine years and a day, no parole. Willem's side was trying to whittle his punishment down to 75 years with parole on the table. Foster was here to stand for Reg. Willem was damaged goods, lost half a lifetime ago to abuse, neglect, and depravity, and she wanted, to serve, wanted him to serve every minute of those 99 years, even the day tacked on behind it. She wanted Willem to die in prison on bad days, and there were many. She dreamed of being there when he did. She glanced around the old courtroom, its dark wood and brass fixtures hearkening back to a foregone era when Al Capone or one of his associates might have strutted along the marble floors on their way to the witness stand. The room felt close and hot as heat hissed out of the heavy vents. The old school building's answer to the February chill outside the heavy leaded windows. Harriet had been here a million times or more testifying in cases, doing her job, locking up killers like Terrell Willem. But what happened next in the rooms like this wasn't up to her. There were always lawyers and judges, always Willems. She scanned the room, glancing over the handful of observers that included her ex-husband in the first row, and Willem's mother and two sisters across the aisle in the back, as if they'd chosen the farthest point to sit for fear of recrimination. Willem's family looked just as hard, just as broken as he was, she thought. The meanness, the misplaced defiance, the confusion on their faces, an explanation for Terrell, but not an excuse. The room smelled of sweat and furnace and oiled leather from her holster and Ron's, and the guards who'd brought Terrell in. She wasn't naive. She knew abuse was generational. She knew poverty and race played a part, and the lack of opportunity made up for the rest of it. That crime and gangs became the reality when there was nothing to counterbalance them, and that boys like Willem almost never made it past thirty. She knew all this because she was charged with fixing it, or at least arresting it. She turned back to Willem, having memorized every line on his face from before. His was the last face her son had seen, and knowing that made it difficult for her to sleep. Willem could have taken the bike, the shoes. He didn't have to take Reg, but he did. He did because Reg meant nothing, because life held no great value, because imprisoned or free, 99 years or 75 was all the same. When you're ready, Miss Foster, Judge Seresti said gently. He didn't have to identify her as a cop. Everyone knew it. But she wasn't here in that capacity. She was here as the mother of a murdered son. She pulled her eyes away from Willem, 
and stared at the statement she'd written. The edges of the single sheet of paper curled and damp with her sweat. These were her reasons for wanting Willem to say stay where he was. Ninety-nine years felt like justice. Seventy-five felt like compromise. Tracy, that was great. Very interesting. And as I'm listening, I'm saying to myself, you presented some depth of characters there. What was your inspiration for them? Well, I wanted to start this book out uh, with Harriet uh, beneath the badge. Um, she's a cop, and she's working in the mean streets of Chicago. But she's also got that other half of her, the, the wounded part. And I wanted to start the book off there. This is not Harriet the cop. This is Harriet the mom grieving. Uh, this Harriet the mom who is filled with guilt and a sense of responsibility and loss. And so that's where uh, we start the book. Uh, and then I, I sort of dump a body somewhere and she has to go to work. But that's where she is uh, emotionally and as a person. Well, it definitely comes out in, in what you read. So I think everybody should read it because you grabbed me. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Are you prepared? Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. Go now to LegacyFoodStorage.com. Use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off. Quick, go. If you're a fan of stories that make you afraid to turn the lights off at night, then you will love Moonless Nocturne, tales of dark fantasy and horror. From attorney, former Air Force officer, special agent for the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and Bram Stoker award-winning author, Hank Schwabel. Moonless Nocturne is a chilling set of ten tales that offers an exquisite and impressive showcase of the author's talents that are sure to entertain and intrigue readers who love a good thrill. With an introduction by the Iconic F. Paul Wilson, Moonless Nocturne is a gourmet platter of both red meat and rare delicacies, not only for aficionados of horror, mystery, thrillers, and suspense, but any connoisseurs of fantastic fiction. It's inventive and original. This collection has already been optioned for television and film by Lone Tree Entertainment and is certain to appeal to fans of King, Barker, Matheson, and Jackson. It's not the dark that should scare you. It's all the things that lurk there. Order your copy right now on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Moonless Nocturne, tales of dark fantasy and horror. From author Hank Schwabel. Now back to the show. Well, we've got the great mystery writer Connie Berry now, and she's going to be uh, reading from the new book coming out, A Collection of Lies, and it's part of her Kate Hamilton Mysteries. I think it's book five, so uh, welcome, Connie. Well, thank you for having me. It is book five. It's coming out in June. And I'm going to be reading from chapter one. And I'll tell you, um, I can't do a really cool British accent. I actually can't even do um, a vaguely believable British accent. So you're going to have to imagine that. But Kate has just married her fiancé, Detective Inspector Tom Mallory, just being the operative word since a run-in with a drugs dealer almost sabotaged the wedding. But now they're honeymooning in Devon, and they're contemplating a possible career move for Tom from policing to nice, safe, private investigations. Thursday, January 2nd, the Old Bell Inn, Devon, England. Murderers can be perfectly ordinary people. Tom was stretched out atop, atop the duvet, bare-chested and wearing his Navy sweatpants. 
I'm serious, Kate. They're often people you'd never suspect. Small irritations build up, and one day they just snap. I once arrested a pensioner for stabbing her neighbor to death with a garden trowel because she was sure some of the weed killer he was spraying had drifted onto her prize roses. I started to laugh, and my coffee went down the wrong way. That's not funny. He looked slightly hurt. I thumped my chest, trying to breathe. I'm sorry. But do you think all newlyweds chat about murder on their honeymoon? To be fair, the topic was hardly surprising. Tom was a detective inspector in the Suffolk Constabulary. But I was an antique dealer and appraiser. Not a particularly treacherous profession. I was leading up to something. Tom picked up a blue folder. We'll be on Dartmoor tomorrow. It's time to think about our investigation. Listen to this. Of all the crimes in Devon's history, the most mysterious may be the case of Nancy Thorne, a 30-year-old lacemaker from the lost Dartmoor village of Whittacombe Throop. Wait a minute, I interrupted him. What do you mean by lost village? How can an entire village be lost? Lots of reasons. Climate change, for one. Settlements that thrived during the medieval warm period were abandoned as the climate cooled. And during World War II, there were villages that... In other words, you don't know. I gave him a playful shove. Keep reading. Tom grinned. At 1 a.m. on the night of 7th September 1885, Nancy returned to the cottage she shared with her sister, a seamstress, in a state of incoherence. Her hair was disheveled. Her dress was torn and soaked with what appeared to be blood. For reasons never explained, neither the village doctor nor the local constable was called. Witnesses testified that Nancy arrived as usual for the six o'clock service at the village church, but left soon afterwards. The vicar, Edward Quick, assumed she had been taken ill. Later, concerned for Nancy's well-being, he called at the cottage where her sister Sally told him Nancy had not returned home. When Nancy finally did appear, she claimed to have no memory of the events of that night and could offer no explanation for the blood on her frock. The police launched, launched an investigation, but as no person in the surrounding area had gone missing, and no body, human or animal, was ever discovered, the case was closed. Nancy died at the age of 46 without ever speaking of the events that occurred that night. Tom closed the folder. Well, that's the case. Please don't tell me we're expected to solve a 140-year-old murder. No. This is what Nash says. The Museum of Devon Life, a small but highly regarded institution led by Dr. Hugo Hawksworthy, formerly of the Mary Rose Museum in Portsmouth, has received a sizable grant for a new exhibit to be called Famous Crimes in Devon's History. Your assignment will be to establish, if possible, the provenance of the dress. Did it really belong to the lace maker in question? Are the stains on the dress human blood? Can we identify the blood type or retrieve any DNA material? Tom looked at me over his glasses. What do you think? Interesting, I said in an offhand way, trying to hide a smile. I was fascinated, and Tom knew it. Sounds a lot safer than policing. Hmm, yes. He lay back and put an arm under his head. Leaving the force is a major decision. Our lives will change. We've already made one life-changing decision. Spending the rest of our lives together, that's turned out pretty well so far. So far, he gave me a cheeky smile. Jury's still out then. The real test will be when we get home, figuring out who cooks and who does the dishes, who squeezes the toothpaste tube from the middle, that sort of thing. I glanced around our suite. 
This isn't exactly real life. The old bell? Tom frowned. If I remember correctly, you called it nothing in the middle of nowhere. I meant it as a compliment. I know you did. He reached over and touched my cheek. The old bell, a former coaching inn near Oakhampton, was perched on a rise overlooking a wild, rushing stream. No fancy spa, no gourmet restaurant with tiny portions artistically presented, no signature cocktails, just comfortable beds, excellent cooking, gorgeous surroundings, and privacy. Frankly, I was getting a bit restless. I needed a challenge, and a blood-stained Victorian dress sounded right up my alley. A discreet knock on the door sent me scrambling for my cashmere robe, a wedding gift from my friend, Lady Barbara Finchley Ford. Coming, I pulled the soft fabric around my body and tied the sash. Breakfast, madam, came a voice from the hallway. I'll leave it outside, shall I? No, no, I opened the door. Come in. A middle-aged woman in a black skirt and white apron entered, balancing a large tray. We don't like to disturb our honeymoon couples. It's no problem. I can see that. She raised an eyebrow, probably assuming our matching black eyes and the gash on Tom's forehead, souvenirs from an encounter with a drugs dealer just before our wedding, were the result of a domestic dispute. Placing the tray on a table, she started to leave, then turned back. Always best to talk things out, my loves. We waited until the sound of her footsteps died away, then collapsed into laughter. An hour later, the coffee cold and our plates nearly empty, we were still in bed. Thinking about Nancy Thorne's dress, Tom asked. Actually, I was thinking about historical mysteries in general, uncovering the past. Everyone involved is long gone. No crime, no danger. I never learn. We should think about making a move, Tom said. I suppose so. I looked over at his profile the straight nose, the angles of his cheekbones, the slight scar near his ear. Life, miraculously, had given me a second chance at love. A whole new life, with his charming, gifted, gorgeous, irresistible. Come on, then, he started to get up. I pulled him back down. Oh, not yet. So that's it. Add in a cybersecurity expert who lives and dresses as if it were 1855, an ex-juvenile delinquent turned tough on crime MP, a Romani family who camped on the moor, local legends about a deadly peat mire, and Kate learns that historical mysteries aren't always nice and safe. Well, incredible. You're just keeping the series going. How, how do you keep the uh, excitement of, uh, of the series going and with the surroundings being in the U.K.? Uh, well, I, I heard one time actually from my agent that uh, when you establish a location like um, Long Barston in Suffolk is the primary location of the series that your readers want to stay there, but that you're allowed to kind of take a little detour maybe every three books or so. So I'm taking my little detour to Devon. So I have um, some new characters. And, and I think actually what keeps a series going uh, is – is change in the characters. They can't be just static. There, there has to be something new, some decisions to make. They have to learn things. They have to grow. They have to develop as people. And so um, I, I had this overarching kind of character arc in mind, and um, there's still some things that Kate and Tom have to learn, so hopefully they can keep going for a little bit. Oh, I'm sure they will. Well, thank you very much. 
This has been a production of the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our show, guests, or hosts, go to our website at houseofmysteryradio.com.